Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, I run the same joke into the ground. (laughs) By talking about the Brexit negotiations, I also talked to Andy Nyman about the politics of horror stories and what the Jewish experience in Europe is like. Stephen, it was a very, very late night for you this week, right? You were a filing at like 1am because Theresa May came out of the summit the head of Emmanuel Macron in a bloodied head of Emmanuel Macron in a, in a fist and shouted, that's it, you bastards, I've got my extension. That's how it happened? Yeah, semi. I mean, so it's, it's odd, right? Because, so, I mean, I'm actually going to defend the lateness of the hour, right? Ultimately, like a, a project involving 27 and a half nations, yeah, they all spoke and they all reached some consensus thing that broadly allows almost everyone to... Feel to, equally unhappy. But we'll, we'll also turn to their domestic electorate and say, look, I got X. Yeah. Macron ultimately, uh, you know, obviously was just as there are, I would say there are no consequences. There are loads of policy consequences to Tory MPs being like, lol, lol Barnier is French. But there are, but it's politically a, a free hit for them. And so, right, ultimately, no deal is a disaster for the UK, very bad for, for everyone else in the EU27, but it is helpful for various people to have been able to say, you know, I... I, when I showed them my, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, they've ended up in October. It's helpful for her to go, oh, it's a flexible extension, even though that's, like, the way Article 50 works is if you pass a withdrawal agreement, after the Article 50 process ends, if they'd successfully passed it in December, they wouldn't have all, you know, Sabine Land wouldn't have been just like, well, I guess I've got to spend three months playing Xbox. Like, that <laughs> That wouldn't have happened, right? We would have, we would have moved on to the, the second phase of talks. But... In, a, in any case, Article 50 has been extended again to uh, October the 31st. It's great, you know, the sun is shining, the birds aren't singing because we're in the middle of London, but we're still in the EU, the right? The birds are dead. Like, what the birds are in London. after we voted to leave, we're actually going to be holding European elections. And, and the, I really, just think, the very, very funny thing about it is watching the Brexiteers be very, very angry that we haven't left the EU at the same time as they haven't voted for the only possible way out of the EU that's been offered to them. So Trying I, to watch them prosecute that case has been hilarious. So I actually... I'm semi-sympathetic to the ERG holdouts, right? In the, their policy asks can only be met through an, un, an unnegotiated exit. And they are trying to get one to the only mechanism that, right? In the same way that, like, you know, supporters of a people's vote, right? They don't have a parliamentary majority, but they know what they want, and they are trying to, to vote in a way which, which gets it. 
Actually, to be honest, the group of people who are to blame for this are, in the safe space of the podcast, the 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 worthless tranche of Labour MPs <laughs> who don't want Brexit to be any softer than this, don't want Brexit to be stopped, refuse to vote for the withdrawal agreement, refuse to vote for Joanna Cherry's amendment to stop no deal, and sit there going, oh, it's difficult, it's hard, it's just, I mean... We want Brexit to happen, just not this Brexit or any other potential existant yeah. form of Brexit. This has been the kind of consistent thing, is like the, the withdrawal agreement offering lots of things that that group of Labour MPs say that they want, and yet they won't Well, I thought that the kind of real low point, right, was Gareth Snell standing up and going, can the Prime Minister give me any guarantees and can't be unpicked by her successor? And it's just like... Mate, if you want something which prevents an elected prime minister in this country doing something, it's called superna- a supernatural body. It's called the EU. The EU. If you don't want that, <laughs> international but, law. Of course, what he's, what he's actually standing up is saying is going, Prime Minister. My calculation about my vo- my voters is that they uh, want me to do Brexit. My calculation about my members is that they want me not to help you. Can you help me out? <laughs> and there is there is nothing. There is literally nothing she can offer to him that, that allows him to square that problem. He just needs to just make a decision, right? Yeah, like I, I don't agree with the position that Caroline Flynn and the other eight MPs who have voted for the deal, but they have at least done something which would actually resolve it, right? Obviously, as, as has been well documented, the Labour leadership did not want to end up in a position in which it was whipping for a, a second referendum. It has nonetheless ended up in that position. However, there is still this this hardcore of MPs who, the worst thing is, they then have the temerity to come up and say, oh, I'm really tired. And it's just like, I mean, yeah, of course you're tired. You're the ones forcing all of us to be here. <laughs> I just feel like a note of, of real anger is kept into your It's like someone going to repeatedly punching themselves in the face and going, my head is so sore. Yeah, Why just, is my head so sore? It's like, you know, the, the pointless motion to get Theresa May to extend when she was already extending. Yeah, one of the people who's been, you know, very vocal in persuading other MPs to vote for her did say to me, oh, you know, I'm, I feel tired. And I just was like, yeah, me too, because I had to be here until 10 o'clock watching a pointless bit of legislation. The one actual use of which is that it does, we now know how long it would take backbench MPs to pass a law without the support of the government, which seeing as one potential way out of this, of course, is for no dealers to take over the government, prorogue parliament and go, well, we'll wait till the 31st of October. Very much what I call the Charles I approach to parliament, that, right? Yeah, but I mean, but that is... Yeah, so we now know that... Actually, Charles II did that a lot. Every time, he only basically called Parliament back during his reign when he needed them to give him some, vote him some money, and the rest of the time he was like, no, it's yeah, really I mean, Basically, the problem with Charles I was he wasn't the first king to do that. He just, he basically didn't realise that, because he was not a very intelligent person, right, that you can either fight wars and have an ambitious foreign policy, mm-hmm. or you can govern without Parliament if you are a monarch in, yeah, in, in the... I'm trying to remember what wars Charles I had. So he had a war, because basically, we, we, when people talk about the English Civil War, we forget that it basically began in 1641, too, when he was trying to force the Book of Common Prayer on the Church of Scotland. Like all public policy failures in the United Kingdom, we test it out in Scotland first. <laughs> it, it's a disaster. We're like, ah, let's do it anyway. Do you know what the um, big question I want to answer is how five foot four Charles I and five foot four Henrietta Maria of France had six foot Charles II as their eldest son? I was so concerned 
concerned that that S was not going to end with six. And I was just <laughs> thinking, I mean, they were the same height. Why would that be difficult for them? But anyway, but that's... that's Advances in medical... Uh, I mean... Really good childhood nutrition. I mean, that's this thing is like... So one of the slight ironies is the reason why... One of the reasons why this infant mortality is so high among Stuart monarchs is because postnatal understanding among doctors was so bad, you were actively better off being poor and not having access to a doctor than being a Stuart and having access to the best medical care i think that's more true in the like, like victorian eras where midwife led care was was less aggressive because they didn't for example decide just to put the forceps but you know that have been yeah. they just pulled out of a dead person in you for or like go from yeah pre-lister and antiseptics they did just if you went into hospital that was a, generally regarded as a very bad thing not a very good thing i can't remember how we got into the obstetric issues of Tudor monarchs, but i'm very Stuart monarchs but i'm very excited because i did great lives this week it went out and i got to talk about the sexual problems of the french royal family so this has very much been a theme week for me. When you've got that bourbon something, you need sexual healing. Valois, actually, when I was well, on, I was on the, you've the, got that the preview. Valois, I mean, that doesn't help me with my Marvin Gaye riff at all. <laughs> a return to traditional Valois. Anyway, um, I can't. Anyway, help, help me. I haven't slept enough. In of itself, a product of the... Ah, see, this is the yes, segue good. back. Yeah, it's working, it's working. Brexit in of itself, the product between the, the differences between the, the French and British monarchies in the early modern period has once again been extended. So what do you think is going to happen? So we got until October the 31st, which is, as some people pointed out, not really enough time to kind of get a general election Tory leadership contest out of everyone's system. Yeah, no, you could do both, notionally. But they don't want to have an election, do they, the Tories, because they don't think they're going to win it. I mean, so essentially the thing that is going to have to give, right, is if you spoke to... Yeah, let's let's imagine I aggregated every Conservative MP I spoke to into one entity. Let's call him <laughs> one easy monthly yeah, uh, Tory MP, John Fungible. Who so he worked in the city, let's say for twenty years beforehand. Elected first, uh, ran in two thousand and five, didn't win. Ran in twenty ten, not part of Cameron's inner circle. Probably voted for Theresa May. Doesn't feel it's worked out that well, right? Your your average Conservative marginal MP. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I'd say, oh, so, Jonathan Fungible, how how do you feel about this? And they'd go, well, look, I voted for the deal. Permanent customs union. That would be difficult. Mm. I'd find that hard to vote for. And you okay, okay, fine. Well, that's one one thing that could get a parliamentary majority that you've decided you you aren't easy with. You go, how do you feel about a second referendum? And they go... I just don't think we could do that. I mean, a lot of my voters would eat me. I'm, I'm a bit nervous about that. And then you go, how about an election? And they, at that point, literally grab you by the collars and go, do not talk to me about an election with that person in charge in this time with Brexit unresolved. I will cut you if you, may, if you suggest. <laughs> right. so, but the difficult thing is, right, is, is when the governing party and Parliament can't get on. The governing party doesn't want an election. And actually, this is where people like start honking on about, oh, the problem with the fixed-term Parliament Act. There, there is literally nothing about this that would change if we didn't have the fixed-term No, because it's still Theresa May would have to call it. Yeah, the, yeah, the, and, or you'd have to have a no-confidence motion in the government that was lost by the government. Yeah, the, the one difference is that she can't say to MPs, I hear Nuneaton is lovely this time of year. There are things about the fixed-term Parliament Act, not least, you know, to channel my inner chartist, five years is far too long mm. but no this this idea that uh, you know someone said oh you know in normal circumstances she'd have resigned it's like no no in normal circumstances politicians who look at polls suggesting they disintegrate over the course of a general election campaign don't go oh i'm terribly sorry that i've failed to pass the the central plank of my platform i guess i had better go to the country and get mellowed no 
I mean, these are people who are paid to cover politics. I mean, that is a great new accent to add to. Hey, I think I ought to go to the country about this time of year. It's lovely and lovely. Now that you're like defecting to the New Yorker or the The whatever it is, I've decided my new routine is going to every week, I'm going to call it by the name of a different US publication because that won't get old really (laughs) fast. I'm going to have to like bring more voices to the table so as well as Southern <laughs> Bell we're going to have to have you know like Hyacinth oh, Bouquet <laughs> yeah. sort of uh, yeah yeah, even more class conscious elder sister yeah. the point is no surely when they say Theresa May resign they don't mean and trigger a demo election they mean and trigger a Tory leadership contest yeah but I mean even in that case there's no the, the belief that, the, that what the situation needs is Prime Minister Boris Johnson is really the triumph of hope over experience. Yeah, I mean, I think so. The so the, the one interesting thing is that what has started to happen when you talk to John Fungible MP, MP for a marginal seat, is a lot of them will basically say, "I have deep concerns about his ability to actually be Prime Minister." And this goes for wherever you are on the Remain, in, unless you are a kind of proper, you know, "I want no deal and I want it yesterday" kind mm. of frother. So actually, then because actually there's lots of people go, in the right-wing press, right, who are really, like, yeah. Charles Maurice, his boss, has kind of went, like, it's not, the idea that he, and actually the fact that he's so strongly associated with the Telegraph now has kind of turned the Times and Sun a bit more cool on him. Two quick things before we finish, which I want to say have, have been really good. So I wrote my column on hereditary peers in the Lords. That's pretty wacko, isn't it? I, you Every so often you remember they're still there and you think, well, that's insane. And the second thing is, David Gork did a good thing. And I'd like to, occasionally, I would like to say something nice about a politician. He is bringing in legislation for no-fault divorce, which everybody from, you know, most senior judges, most retired senior judges, actually quite a lot of divorce lawyers, says is a much better idea. Instead of having to, this sort of halfway weird system that we've got, where you've got what looks like fault-based divorce, except the court doesn't make any attempt to actually establish blame. So it just turns people against each other in this really unpleasant way. And unless you want to wait years, you have to sort of go for unreasonable behaviour or adultery or desertion then it's like this will make people's lives i think a lot better it is a nice thing to happen unfortunately you know what? it's really stuffed up the chapter on divorce in my book david gork thank you very much for that okay he has i, I think david gork has just you know quietly been doing lots of really good yeah like i'm particularly enjoying this way that whenever there's a big news story he'll just kind of like do like a statement just being like i found a new power that doesn't involve legislation which allows me to send slightly fewer people to prison yeah. for pointless short sentences yeah no that was good so i i people there was a terrible thing if you remember in the lobby a couple of years ago where they'd be like oh david gork such a pair of hands uncork the gork they would say and you just sort of wanted to slightly die inside but actually i think this is one that i think if he gets it through it's got huge it ought to have huge cross-party support it actually ought to be a really long overdue piece of good legislation and maybe something apart from brexit will happen that we can talk about here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And 
And now for a segment I like to call... You ask us! You will have to do that on, on your own, or you're going to have to train up... When you're up. at the... Um, uh, uh, New Republic! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is going to falter this on the rocks of how many <laughs> American publications you know. American publications I know. Right. <laughs> this wouldn't happen on the Cincinnati Bugle. <laughs> what question were you asked? You were asked a question about PR. How would the Brexit deadlock be different if we had PR... So the results of the last election under PR, my assumption is that essentially the ERG would be its own party, right? Or there would be some kind of UKIP-y, Brexit-y, that would be a, a party on itself. Well, yeah, you'd, ha- you'd have something called something like True Britain, you know, like, you know, Lovely Brits. Or maybe they just lean into it and just the be like deranged party. Facebook share party. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, like you know, you know, I'm a boomer and, and I don't care who knows it. Yeah, like... <laughs> That'd be such a great name for a part, the uh, Boomer Party. Yeah. But my assumption is that actually the rough blocks would be broadly the same. Yeah. You wouldn't get a situation in which the right-wing block was much, much bigger. Well, no, I mean, this this is one of the things, isn't When people talk about the fact that if you look across the continent, broadly the Labour Party is doing a lot better than the traditional left party. This is true. However, it is not doing better than... The, the traditional the, left party plus uh, the centre-left Plus the centre-left, plus the populist left, plus the ecology party, right? So if you essentially went, oh, well, right, we, you would expect it to have, have put together that coalition, yeah. which... The big difference, of course, is under first past the post, it might be that that Labour coalition is big enough to form some kind of governing proposition. However, when people talk about it as a model to follow for the left on the continent, I'm slightly dubious about that because it still has the same essential problem that it's not getting to 50% of the vote plus one. Whereas, of course, throughout most of the post-war period, the British left has had the reverse problem and it's been able to put together a coalition that might have been able to hold power under PR, but not one which can hold power under first past the post. But yeah, broadly, you'd have, you know, some Greens, some various kind of left nationalists, you know, centre-left party and and a leftist party, right? So it wouldn't really change the composition, but I think it would change the attitude. So the idea is that you are, there isn't a lot more horse trading and that's built into the system, right? Because I remember, you, I think you tweeted earlier in the week that the problem with the Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn talks is it's in neither of their interests for, for them to go anywhere, neither it is in either of their interests for either of them to be the one that collapses the talks, right? So we could just, they could just sit in a, like, yeah. forever. I mean, this thing's right. Like, the, the fact that it, you know, has become... Yeah, kind of, yeah, I can't remember which big name pro-Remain commentator was was talking about Jeremy Corbyn betraying voters again. And it's just like, guys, could we please all give up the word betray? Just, just, just maybe we could just only use it maybe once a month when we think it's someone's done something really bad, just wean ourselves off it gradually. But part of the difficulty is, is because although First Past the Post hasn't yielded a decent majority government since 2005... Everyone acts, particularly when we have a right-wing government, the right-wing press acts even more so, like the, like the governing party deserves and ought to act like it has a majority, right? So this whole, like, oh, we'll change, a, change the leader and we'll get someone in with yeah, a bit of passion, a bit of welly. It's just like, I mean, is Welly the name of the MP for yeah. Marginal South? Ashfield, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, just like, yes, exactly. Or is this person going to clone themselves? I, I think that's the really interesting thing. And obviously the Lib Dems got incredibly punished for being part of the coalition. But when you move to a system which has got coalitions are inevitable and built in, and after, presumably after a while everyone has to grow up a bit about the idea that there is just some give and take. So we essentially think it wouldn't solve anything. But we should have PR anyway, I think, shouldn't we? I, I might, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just, yeah, I mean, I basically feel like, I, I just, it. yeah, obviously, because I'm, you know, like a massive wetter, I'm really into it. I just, I think partly, like, you know, like, <laughs> the, the shape of your politics is dependent on how you ask a question. And if you have this kind of, like, 
you know, one side smashes the other side. One, it incentivizes the kind of like politics as football. Oh, and the third thing that matters tonight is the deal might not pass kind of stuff. It also in, hugely incentivizes politics based around, um, yeah, like kind of fake fake binaries, which I do think, yeah, actually, even in countries where the left is similarly, i.e., most is similarly struggling to form majority governments, the the shape of the state is in rather better nick. Yeah. Because actually, the second you're forced to have a conversation about policy and evidence, oh, guess what? That moves you into a more I remember conversations about position. policy and evidence. Well, this thing is like if if you had a PR system, right? There is no way universal credit would still exist <laughs> in its current because it, it's not it's not a policy that you can argue for in a coalition negotiation because it yeah. doesn't do the things in it it is supposed to do. Right, good. PR wouldn't solve Brexit, but it would solve a lot of other problems. Sorted. And I'm joined by Andy Nyman, co-author of Ghost Stories, which is at the Lyric Hammersmith until 11th of May. I was reading up on this and you said the genesis of this play was phoning your co-writer, Jeremy Dyson, saying, I have this idea to do a play that is the vagina monologues with ghost stories. (laughs) That is exactly right. Please, please unpack that for me. Okay, it's nowhere near as misogynistic and terrifying as it sounds. (laughs) Jeremy and I have been best friends since we were 15. We met at a Jewish summer camp. And one of the things that bonded us was a love of horror films. And all things horror, actually. Mm. And so we'd always said, oh, it'd be amazing to work together and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he lives up north. I live down here. We're both married. We've both got families, you know, and we're both busy. And, you know, as you often do with mates, that sort of slips away from you. And suddenly 35 years have passed, right. you know. And I'm obsessed with theatre. As a family, we go and see everything. And I'd gone to see the, the vagina monologues, which I didn't really enjoy. So it allowed me to just sort of sit back from this thing a little bit and look at this packed theatre and this show that was all over the world and I just looked at this thing and thought this is three people sitting on stools reading and there is no set that's an amazing business model so that just sort of sat in the back of my head and then a couple of weeks later I was walking through town and I passed the woman in black which if you haven't seen it I urge you to see it is a truly brilliant piece of theatre which has been on for sort of 40 billion years. Well, yeah, it's, been, it's actually been on for about 30 years because I was in the TV version of yeah. The Woman in Black and at the same time the play had just opened and it's brilliant. But it struck me as I was walking past this thing that's been running for 30 years how insane it was that in all of that time there hadn't been another play that was dealt with horror. And it it struck me as so sort of weird that it's a bit like saying, well, you can't have another musical because there's Phantom of the Opera. You can't have another thing with songs in it. And there was just this sort of moment of fusion. And I phoned Jeremy and said, I've had this idea, which is the vagina monologues with ghost stories. I should clarify for anyone now confused. There are no scary vaginas in No, there aren't. But the idea of having a kind of an anthology, right? Yes. And, And the weird thing was, Helen, that I had not connected... At that point, it's so strange the the way ideas are born and the way that they kind of... You think you've made a decision, but actually, as you get further down the line, you realise the subconscious has been sort of shoving you. It didn't even connect with me and Jeremy until we were sort of into the writing of it. That Oh, my God, this was our version of those amicus horror films that we'd grown up adoring or Dead of Night, this remarkable British film from 1945 that we just loved. And it was it just hadn't even really struck us until we were 
into it. So that was the genesis of the idea. That isn't what the show became, or that isn't what the, you know, and then the film, of course. It sort of grew into becoming this other thing. But one of the things that was initially interesting about the idea is that often as, I say artist, not in a highfalutin way, but I mean someone who works within the arts to, to try and make a living, it's very easy to think that we deal with the art bit and the commerce bit is the ugly bit that you can't really talk about because we're not, we can't do that. But actually, one of the things that made Ghost Stories an interesting proposition for the Lyric Hammersmith when it first started was that we came with a sort of commercial idea, which was it would be 90 minutes long, it would be marketed to an audience in the way that a horror film is marketed. It would deliver and it was contemporary. Because if if it wasn't contemporary, if it was Victorian mm. or historically based, you could only be not as good as The Woman in Black because it's brilliant. Mm. So why would you do that? So we wanted it to be contemporary and deliver scares that were as bold and as big as the best horror films you could go and see. But we also wanted it to be a small cast and tourable. Ironically, it hasn't toured yet. You know, it's 10 years down the line. It's been all over the world, but it hasn't toured in the UK. And part of that was also about trying to make it commercially viable so that it wasn't this ridiculously expensive show that meant we'd love to put it on somewhere, but we just can't afford it. You know, you, you were trying, we were trying to sort of stack the odds in our favour a bit as best we could. I think that's fascinating because I agree with you. There is a kind of feeling that actually in any way trying to think about what makes a show work commercially is sort of, you know, kind of letting the side down slightly. Yeah. But I think most art is better within very rigid tram lines. It's why I don't like free verse. You know, give people a proper rhyme scheme and they have to really yeah. think about it for a really long time. And the same way with if you say, well, what is the best show that you can make in 90 minutes with a small cast? I'm going to have to think of creative ways around that. It's a really interesting proposition. I wanted to ask you as well, because the other thing that you're, well, not as well known as you should be for, in my opinion, is working with Darren Brown See, on a lot of his... I'm delighted that I'm not as well known for that. Right, OK. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Why? Because that's my brilliant hobby. Okay, that's fair enough. The, the acting has always been that that's my career and, and the writing and directing, you know, but the career is is the acting and that's the thing that I've most passionate about. I'm blessed to have a few things I'm passionate about, my God. But yeah, I love that the Darren Brown my work with Darren has It's your cheeky side hustle. <laughs> That is my cheeky side hustle. But the thing that I, I was interested in was you were saying, you know, one of the things you'd wanted to do with that was actually try and put some slight not big P political, but small P political messages in into yeah. some of those shows about maybe, you know, not believing too quickly what you see or yeah. how easily we all are to psychologically manipulate, which is a very good message for now, right? That oh you think God. you can trust your eyes but you often really can't. Yeah. Was that the same with, with ghost stories? Or was that pure escapism? No, 100%. I mean, there's a huge amount of truth in ghost stories. I, I don't mean, you know, the ghosty stuff, but I mean, it's entirely rooted in truth. And, and I have to say, ghost stories would not exist without all the work that I'd done with Darren. Well, for a few reasons. I mean, pragmatically, it had sort of taken away my absolute terror of a deadline. Right. You know, when you know you've just got to deliver something. You've said you will and you... you, you taken the money you've got to deliver i'm familiar with this yes yeah, the horror the pure horror yeah. of that but also many of the lessons that i'd learned in creating stuff with that and also of course i'm talking like this is just me it's not it's me and jeremy dyson and we are you know if you had jeremy here he would have his story about how it was created so we are two halves of the same thing but in terms of my experience of it but it's hugely important to deliver a message for us because horror's always done that and that's one of the interesting things about horror is people who don't like horror think it's made by subversives and people who just want to sort of upset. Whereas the truth is horror, which has been 
you know, within the history of film, which is so babyish. I mean, it's only, you know, 110 mm. years old as an art form or something. You know, almost the first film made was a horror film, and I would warrant that two years from now, when it's the end of the world, uh, um, <laughs> right. the last film released will be a horror film because there's something about horror as an experience that is created by people, for the most part, not always, of course, there's schlock and rubbish out there, but for the most part, the ones that resonate are people who are looking at the world and thinking, what the f- is mm. going on? I felt like that about Get Out, actually. I it's felt that was one of the sensational piece smartest of commentaries on particularly the way that white liberals pat themselves on the back about being so post-racism while enjoying all the fruits of legacy of, of centuries of racism and colonialism. Right? It's, it's brilliant. And it does all that whilst also just being funny as well. I think one of the things that horror often is, is very funny yeah. and genuinely jump scary in that old-fashioned way yeah. as well it's brilliant and led by astonishingly good performances that are truthful and committed and on the edge you know and brave and so yeah we there's a lot that we want that we felt we wanted to to put out there but again the joy of it is trying to put it out there in a way that isn't that you're not slamming the audience over the head with it, that it's there for you if you want it. And it's so interesting. There's such snobbery around horror. And it's so naive, that snobbery. And one of the snobberies is... I mean, it's it's horror and broad comedy, you know, because these are the things that, for the most part, are deeply populist. I think there's a deep suspicion of anything you enjoy can't be doing you good. I think that's the thing that most often, in my opinion, ruins theatre. This idea that actually the more that you're sort of actually not enjoying it at the moment, the more it's you're eating your greens and it's probably therefore doing you good. Yeah. I mean, as as I say, as a family, we see so And both your kids act, right? They're both actors, yeah. 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 In fact, Preston is in Ghost Stories. Oh, and the family business. I know. (laughs) He plays the kid in the car. And I have to say, it's not like, Daddy wants his boy to be an actor. Would you like to be in the... You know, he's been working now for four years and has just done an episode of this George Clooney thing, Catch-22, and did a film, did a theatre tour, and my daughter's Macy has just been at the Many a Chocolate Factory and is about to go off to Chichester. And so they're working actors and they're cutting their teeth and doing great stuff. You're already thinking about about how you're going to do, I don't know, an all Nyman version of The Sound of Music or something. Oh, that's happening next year. (laughs) Uh, You'll be the first person to buy a ticket. (laughs) There you go. So into that. (laughs) Oh, yes, theatre. I know what I was saying. We see a lot and it drives me insane a lot of the time. Because it's too long, it's too boring, and it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we've always gone a lot. It's our biggest expense as a family. So when four of you go, that is is not a small investment. It's a mortgage payment. I'm not even exaggerating. No, the top tickets now at the National Theatre are £88 each. And that's a fuck can afford that? That's a subsidised theatre. And when there's four of you going, and plus you know, a meal, or even if that meal is, let's grab something from here, you know, and it's quick and easy, still another 35, 40 quid. It's so much money. And going back to what you said about, you know, uh, forcing you to deliver something, I feel that responsibility massively. I always felt it with the Darren shows, and I feel I feel it with this deeply, that if I expect people to take their money that they have worked so hard for, and even at the Lyric where it's subsidised, and it's ch- I think the top price is probably 28 quid, which is amazing, that's still a lot of money if there's two of you going, and times are hard, which they are. I feel... Re- 
deeply responsible that I have to give you value for that money. And I think that that so often the audience are neglected in theatre because it's art, in inverted commas, which means it can be obtuse and it can be clever and it can be ponderous and it can be all of those things and it can get away with it. And again, that isn't to say all theatre should be deeply populist and deliver nothing but simple stuff. I don't mean that. But I do mean that very often I'll see things and think, this isn't finished. Mm. It's really easy because I saw, it made me feel very old when I first heard about that you, this was coming back because I think I saw this in 2010 in the original lyric <coughs> And I thought, oh, temporo mores. Um, but the thing that stood out to me at the time was that, and this is the thing I think I wrote in my theatre review this week, actually, theatre is nothing if it's not alive. It has to justify being a piece of theatre. Yeah. It has to justify being an alchemy of something that can only happen in a room with live people doing the stuff. And you know, and that kind of comes whether or not it's someone doing something that's an act of incredible virtuosity that you want to see them doing live, mm. which I think is some definitely, I think, the, the Darren stuff. You're just like, how is he, yes. one man doing that in front of me? I can't see how it's done. Mm. And that is that's incredible or it's about seeing people going through emotions on stage and really carrying you on that journey or the you know some of the stuff in, in the kind of tricks of uh, you know i was interested to watch the twilight zone recently in the west end which has got i think richard wiseman did the illusions for it richard. and it has got and, and seeing people do that live and the choreography that's needed mm. to do it in the same way that watching a musical is brilliant because you're watching the dancing and the singing that can only you know yeah. that it's humans making this i think that's for me what ultimately separate what makes justifies the money and as you say the big expense of going to the theater is it's not just watching the DVD, it's watching yeah. It's watching all these elements crystallise together. Well, that's it. That's what you want, and that's what makes theatre unmatchable, is that proper jaw-dropping frisson that you get when you think, oh, my God. And then, you you know, you go out buzzing, as opposed to, oh, OK, God, how much did we waste on that? Yeah, I think that's all, like, that sort of feeling when you think, oh, it's another hour and a half. I know. <laughs> There's nothing worse. Actually, just to talk, I mean, switch tracks to Fiddler for a minute. So, okay, um, so if anyone who's not in it, you're also in Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, Because you'd like to keep busy. Yeah, I'm which, playing Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. Which but. must be an incredibly interesting play to do now when, I mean, there were stories just at the weekend about anti-Semitism in the, in the Labour Party. It's something that's very much hovering in the air. It's not a... Hovering? Well, okay, yeah, it's right there, right in front of people's faces. It's, I, I think, something that maybe five, ten years ago people would have thought was a... A lot of people would have thought was yesterday's problem is now very much today's problem. It's a really tricky subject, isn't it? But the truth of it is, here's the honest to God truth. As Jews, it's not news mm. that there's anti-Semitism in the Labour Party on the far left. The news is it's finally in the news. That's the thing. It's not like to us, oh my God, what a revelation. It's like, thank Christ, finally. We're talking about it. It's not getting better, mm. but at least it's out there now. And it's out there for all of the ugliness and filth that it's giving birth to you know and all the complexities of untangling what's underneath it all and untangling separating what people think of israel with what is bold anti-semitism mm. and you know it's it's difficult stuff but it's sort of a relief to shine a light on it now and let's not pretend anymore it's there and it's there and it's massive and if it doesn't get dealt with properly, things are just going to get worse and worse and uglier and uglier. But Fiddler is a story of a family who who find anti-Semitism and encroachment of uh, onto them so bad that they have to they have to you know they have to mm. leave right. They have to. They, well, this, it's the story of my great grandparents. Right. So you did a DNA test, right? And you're ninety nine percent Ashkenazi Jewish. Helen, ninety nine point nine percent Ashkenazi. Jewish. Some point, some rogue one person <laughs> snuck in ninety generations ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really something, and. You know, I've got photos of my great-grandparents. 
who fled Poland and Lithuania at exactly the period that Fiddler is set. So this production that Trevenant directed, it's, it's an amazing production of it because it's not sentimental, it's not schmaltzy, it's not show busy. It's a very honest production of the show. It's deeply funny without playing the gags. It's deeply moving. It's a brilliant cast. What switched me over to talk about this was we're talking about how long shows are when you find yourself glancing at your watch and yeah. thinking, oh, my God. Fiddler's a long show. Traditionally, it's a big show. And the first half of Fiddler is about one hour, 40 minutes. And I cannot tell you, it is a blink. Hmm. You know, it's a... And we, I have heard that endlessly, that, you know, you walk into theatre and you see the thing, act one, one hour, 40, act two, 45 minutes. And you know, you think, oh, God, am I going to get through this without needing a wee? Oh, God, how long is this? Oh, And suddenly, you're at the interval... You know, and it's amazing when Trevor's direction is extraordinary. So this is Trevor Nunn's direction, Trevor legendary, Nunn. you know, the yeah. guy who said, I think there could really be a musical in this Victor Hugo story. It's you know, a, he's like, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he is amazing. I mean, let alone the fact, when you write, when the book is written on theatre, there will be five directors, probably, that are listed as the greatest theatre directors in the history of theatre Trevor will be one of those people that's not hyperbole it's just fact you look at his body of work it's it's extraordinary what's even more extraordinary he is a humble charming man who doesn't never raises his voice and never wears this experience with arrogance I mean just sort of asks the same questions we all ask we're wondering I wonder if this will work but let's just genuinely so he's amazing but god you just realize that the experience he brings to it when you take this thing that could be sluggish and just it's seamless you know and it's an amazing design at the theater as well honestly it's breathtaking so it's an honor to go and do that show you know, yeah, I just think it's an interesting one to do because I, I was talking to someone last year whose father was on the kinder transport yeah. uh, and his father was put on, you know, they, and, the, and the parents waved goodbye to them and then they were like, we'll get the next train. And you know what, they never no, they never course. got the next train. And I think that experience of the kind of, I think Margaret Hodges talked about this, you know, the packed suitcase in the hall being part of the, the Jewish experience yeah. that you have to, you never quite settle anywhere because you never know that one day... You're going to take that call. Well, that's a really interesting thing, just to to dip into that a second. I think we can be more specific about that. That is a uniquely European Jewish Mm. experience. That's not the American experience. Because the the profound difference is when the many Jews that fled, you know, Eastern Europe and Germany and got to America, which is where my great-grandparents were going, like many of the British Jews who got to Hull, Liverpool, Manchester and told they were in America, off you get. <laughs> Truly. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. So they all get off, you know, my lot of leads. And, um, but the ones that did get to America, the American Jewish experience, initially, of course, very much immigrants and, and living within their sort of shtetls within whichever city they were in, but became sort of embraced and part of what America is. You know, the great, um, the truly great America. So New York is just profoundly Jewish, whether you're Jewish or not. And the American Jewish experience is, here we are, wonderful. The U- the European and the British Jewish experience still is, shh, 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 don't make a fuss. And that's, that's a, that is absolutely packed suitcase mentality Mm. that is you know suddenly you look at it now and think yeah and let's forget about it being a jewish experience 
what about the millions of people who live here and have lived here their whole lives, rightly so, who are now feeling, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Mm. Are we are we going or staying or are we no longer welcome? It's it's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary when you do fiddler every night to think, you know, whilst we as Jews own that story, there's no question. It is universal and could have been written yesterday. It's terrifyingly relevant. And it's the same shit that goes around in circles. Greed, greed, arrogance, greed, ego Mm. that just blocks humanity. Mm. I know I think it is one of those things that the truly great shows are ones that are both incredibly specific and always, always feel relevant. I yeah. felt like that when I watched Carol Churchill's Top Girls last week, you know, the mm. story about female ambition, but like, what are the limits of that and what do you have to give up if you want to be a woman? Do you, do you have to essentially be like a kind of ersatz man? And it is that, that you know, finding those universal parallels in, in the, the richness of stories that really work, that there's always something new and they always speak, again, it's that thing of theatre being live. Every new audience has a, yeah. has a new encounter with them. And Andy, I could talk to you for the rest of the day, but I sense you've probably got things to do. Two um, shows. <laughs> yeah. I'm a fiddler, two shows. Right, okay. Uh, give me a one-sentence pitch for why people should go and see ghost stories. Wow. A one-sentence pitch. I promise you, it's one of the most extraordinary nights you'll ever have in the theatre. And I know that sounds profoundly arrogant. Apologies for that. But I sit and watch it with an... It doesn't feel like it's part of us anymore, me and Jeremy. It feels like it's its own thing. And it's what you said about theatre being something that's so different and special even if you hate i know this is a long sentence there's a lot of commas happening here (laughs) even if you hate horror you will love it you will laugh you will scream and you will have a lot to think about i thought you were gonna go and you'll wet yourself (laughs) i'll leave that to you (laughs) ghost stories is at the lyric hammersmith until 11th of may and if you can't make it to london there is a film version andy nyman thank you thank you You've been listening to New Statesman Podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And yes, Stephen's jokes are true. I am leaving the New Statesman Podcast if you have black armbands, prepare to put them on in the last but one week of June. (laughs) 